For our sermon text then today, let's turn to Genesis 34. It's also in the bulletin insert as well, Genesis 34. We'll be reading the chapter. Last chapter we saw a reconciliation between Jacob and his brother Esau. We saw the making of peace in answer to prayer, but we'll find something very different in this chapter. Uh, Genesis chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father, Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they had heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us, and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it, and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully, because he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you, that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem, And the young man did not delay to do this thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honorable of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate to their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the man agree to dwell with us to become one people, when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of his city listened to Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, 
Dinah's brothers took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and murdered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. O Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for equipping us by it, training us in righteousness, and teaching us the truth and the good news of salvation. We pray that you would bless the word that has been read, that you would guide the preaching, that it would be faithful and edifying and fruitful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we saw... God answered Jacob's prayer by giving him favor in the eyes of Esau, reconciling these brothers who had been at odds for their whole life, in fact, since the womb, Uh, especially for the last 20 years where uh, Jacob had been in fear of his life from Esau. Jacob, in fact, had found relief both from the hostility of Laban and from the hostility of Esau uh, within a, a few days. Uh, He had made it back to the land of Canaan by the blessing of God, and he had arrived in peace, and he had come back to Canaan. This chapter seems to pick up perhaps more than 10 years after his encounter with Esau. Some time has passed. The sojourn from the Jabbok to Shechem is recounted in a few words, the end of the last chapter, uh, uh, coming to this chapter, but it may have taken a while. Um as he stopped in Succoth and built a house and booths. Uh, We don't know, maybe he went to other places too, but he ends up at Shechem. But from the story, we find that Jacob's children are no longer little kids. They are no longer little children. Uh, Dinah is old enough to be married, and her brothers are old enough to slaughter a city. These are not six-year-olds. All considered, when everything's calculated, Dinah was probably around 15 or so, Simeon and Levi probably around 20. Those are rough estimates. Jacob seems to have enjoyed years of relative prosperity and peace, a welcome rest after his turbulent trials. Uh, He had been in one trial after another, a rough life in a foreign land. He had finally got back. Things seemed to be resolved, but perhaps now he had grown a little too comfortable. From the following chapter, we find that Jacob had not yet gone to Bethel to worship God there. Remember, he said that if you bring me back in peace, the Lord will be my God. I'll give a tenth of what the Lord has given me, and I'll make Bethel a house of the Lord. In other words, I'll worship God there. He had partially fulfilled his vow. He had worshipped God as his God. He had built an altar to him, but he had not yet been to Bethel. 
Why the delay? I don't know, but I know it's not good to delay to pay your vows. The trouble at Shechem, among other things, seems to be a trial that would stir up Jacob from his sluggishness. God was the shepherd of Jacob. And again, he could use the sinful actions of men to shepherd him. Uh, He had done so before, and we find God doing so now. So the initial application, even though it's not the main point here, is, is don't delay to pay your vows. Do not grow sluggish in prosperity. When God gives you peace, uh, this is a blessing to be rightly used. Serve the Lord. There are also echoes in this passage of the fact of polygamy and favoritism and jealousy, the fact that Jacob had two wives and children from both wives, and Dinah was the daughter of the lesser-loved Leah, and it's her full brothers, other children of Leah, that are particularly indignant about what happens and take drastic action in response to her violation, not trusting their father to take care of it. Even at the end, there remains tension, unresolved tension between Jacob and the sons of Leah, a tension that's going to reappear in the life of Joseph in a few chapters later. A tension, in fact, that is only really resolved near the end of the book. Jacob, who had once deceived his father, is now deceived by his sons. Not only do his sons deceive the Shechemites, but they also deceive their father, who, once he learns what their true intent was, rebukes them. The trouble continues to arise in his household. Now, let's look at the text first. I want to just walk through what exactly happens and then what we can learn from it. First of all, the first four verses describe the violation of Dinah. First verse talks about Dinah's visit into the city of of Shechem. She goes to visit, or out to see, the women of the land. This sounds an ominous note. When was the last time, the only time previous to this in Genesis, that mentioned the women of the land? You'd have to look back, but, and you might know, but it is when Rebecca and Isaac were distressed about Esau marrying women of the land. It was a distress to them, a great distress, something that they agreed about. That's what the last time we heard about the women of the land. And now Dinah is going out to sea the women of the land. Women of the land means that, you know, there's women there and, and Dinah has brothers too. Will, will the people of Jacob be assimilated into the Canaanites? It's also ominous because of the previous threats to women from the pagans, from the Egyptians, from the Philistines. Remember how Abimelech had told Isaac, one of the people might easily have lain with your wife. That, that's the society in which they were Living. This was not Mayberry. Uh, this was uh, a place in which there was uh, sexual immorality as a commonplace. Uh, this was not a safe place. Dinah goes into the city to see the women of the land. Verse 2 describes the violation of Dinah. There is some debate. There's a debate about a lot in this passage, in fact. Um, Some call this the rape of Dinah. I don't think the text describes it as such. Certainly, whatever Shechem did was clearly wicked. That is uh, certainly emphasized in verse 2. 
uh, that, and throughout the passage, that what he did was quite wicked, an outrageous thing. Uh, but none of the words used imply the use of force or violence. All of them can be used to describe consensual relations, and really what we lack is much description about Dinah's actions and thoughts. We find very little after verse 1 about Dinah herself. And there's always more debate about a text when it's about what the text doesn't say. Uh, You usually have to look at what the text does say. There's some things we don't know. But the word for seize in the ESV is the generic word for take, like for taking a wife, like in verse 9. The word for humiliated means humiliated, sometimes refers to rape, but also can refer to violating a woman in consensual adultery or premarital fornication in in Deuteronomy 22. Uh, It's a violation of the woman or a a humiliation of the woman. The word used throughout the narrative is defiled, uh, used in Leviticus for defiling immoral sexual relations, as in Leviticus 18. All considered, I think the event described is a case of seduction and premarital sex initiated by Shechem, aggravated by the fact that Shechem was a prince in the city and was a pagan Canaanite. And so this is a great trouble, a great problem, an outrageous thing that took place, a sin. And in verses 3 through 4, we find that after the fact, Shechem's soul, perhaps before, but at least after, his soul was drawn to Dinah, and he, he spoke tenderly to her, and he asked his father to approach Jacob to get Dinah as a wife. At least he wasn't as bad as one of David's son, who, after he did forcibly uh, rape Tamar, then hate her. Now, he was drawn to Dinah, but as we'll find, because he's a Canaanite, because he's a pagan, that only makes it in some ways more complicated. As we find the problem, will Jacob's people be assimilated into the Canaanites? It's complicated. Verses 5 through 24 discuss the negotiations and schemes as the fathers and the brothers assemble to work out what to do about the situation. Jacob waits for his sons. He knows his sons are going to want a say in this. Uh, And when they come in, and Hamor and his son Shechem come, uh, Hamor proposes a marriage alliance, not only a marriage between Shechem and Dinah, but also an alliance between the two groups, that, that we would make marriages, that you may dwell, that we might become one people. And Shechem speaks up for himself, He doesn't really talk about what's already happened, but he does uh, offer to give whatever is required, as great a bride price and gift as you will, probably one of those going to the family and one of those going to Dinah, the bride price and the gift. And whatever you will say to me, I'll give it. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Then the sons of Jacob lay a trap. They speak deceitfully. They... uh, make a a statement that we can't give her to someone who is uncircumcised. Uh, If we're going to make this marriage alliance, you all have to be circumcised. Then we can do this and become one people. Uh, But they don't mean this. They only want to disable the men of the city so that they can then slaughter them. But Hamor and his son Shechem agree to this. They go back and, and convince the men of the city to agree to this. Shechem is enthusiastic about this. Notice the words, 
to the men of the city are not saying, this God is the true God, let's all receive the sign of this covenant with the God of Jacob. But no, it's saying, if we do this, we can align with this people and all their stuff is going to become ours. That is, should be a troubling thing for the people who care about the people of Jacob and their special identity. So there's a problem here, one that perhaps Jacob isn't even fully aware of. That's maybe both sides are speaking a little deceitfully. But then as the men of the city are, are disabled on the third day after the, the mass circumcision throughout the city, Simeon and Levi take up their swords and go out. They visit the city and they kill all the men, all the men of the city, and plunder the city. They take Dinah, who's all along has still been in the city, in Shechem's house, and take her out and get her out of there and take uh, the rest as plunder. Then Jacob rebukes Simeon, Simeon and Levi. He calls attention to now the trouble that they all face, that the Canaanites could gang up on them and wipe them out. But the sons remain defiant. Shall he treat our sister as a prostitute? Should he treat our sister as a prostitute. And that's how the chapter ends. It seems like they get the last word, but we'll find out later that Jacob, in fact, gets the last word years later. From this chapter, I think we can learn several things. First, beware sexual immorality. Secondly, beware wrath and murder. And thirdly, hold fast to the Lord who delivers his people. First, beware sexual immorality. Learn from Dinah and Shechem. From Dinah, learn to take precautions, to be careful, for example, with the company that you keep. Whoever walks with the wise become wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Take wise precautions when you are in dangerous circumstances, when you're in places like Shechem, circumstances that might be dangerous to you or dangerous for you thinking of the threats to you from other people or temptation that might press upon you. In any case, to take someone with you, you know, common sense precautions to guard yourself, to not be naive about a sinful world. Do not be like the naive youth in Proverbs that is simple-minded and not wise. You will live in this world with the ungodly, with very ungodly people. Not everyone equally ungodly, but... We live in the world with them and be careful not to partake with them in ungodliness. Our culture in particular uh, promotes sexual immorality, makes what happened in this passage very casual and could desensitize us from being like the men in the passage and the Moses who's writing it saying that this was an outrageous thing and a thing not to be done, uh, a defiling thing, a sinful thing as even the New Testament as well would urge us, flee fornication, flee sexual immorality, preserve your body in purity. Certainly do not be like Shechem. Learn from Shechem and don't do what he did. This is the way of the Canaanites. This is the way of the ungodly. This is the way of the Gentiles. The way that Old Testament and New Testament tell us to flee. Those are the futile ways that we've been uh, saved from and ought not to go back to. Such sexual immorality that he committed is outrageous and violating and defiling. It's against the will of God. 
It is against his design. It's a violation of the other person. Even if they are on board and consent, it is still a violation of the other person. It often leads awake, leaves a wake of destruction in its path. Consider how Shechem's actions impacted not only himself and his father, but all the city unleashed a fire that devoured them all. Do not live like the Canaanites. Jesus calls his people, his disciples, to a much higher standard. To guard the heart as well as one's deeds. Let young men in particular learn to exercise self-control. You have strength and power and ability. Use them for worthy ends, for the future, not for a night. With both heart and deed, treat women with respect, with purity, with propriety. Those safeguards are there for a reason. And when you are ready, pursue marriage with wisdom and honesty. Do not be like Shechem. Now, at least Shechem sought to make things right afterwards, although the fact that he was an unbelieving pagan complicated things. Biblical law does address this kind of situation after the fact. If it happens, what do you do? If you go to Exodus chapter 22, it mentions... Exodus 22, verse 16. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So if this thing happens, uh, the man should be held accountable. He ought to marry her and pay the full bride price. But if her father and her does not want the marriage to go, it's their prerogative to, to stop the marriage. But he would still need to pay the bride price um, and to, to compensate and also to uh, ensure that perhaps in the future she could get married, that the bride price had already been paid. Uh, But in in any case, he would be responsible to try to make things right and be held accountable even if he didn't want to in a just society. This also shows up in Deuteronomy 22. Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29. Deuteronomy 22, 28 through 29. After talking about adultery and then distinguishing between adultery, where they're both responsible, and the case of rape, where the woman cries out and is not responsible and liable, and the the man is, then it speaks of uh, premarital uh, relations, uh, fornication, in verses 28 through 29. If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. Now it does say seizes here, but it's a different word than seizes in the case of rape. We have here um, a situation in which it is not rape, and rape would be worse, with a worse penalty than the one described here, even when that is not the case uh, that he ought to give. Here, a specific price was mentioned in that situation in that day, 
Um, he wouldn't be able to get away with offering anything less. And also, he loses the right to divorce, too. Uh, wouldn't just be able to go through with it and then turn around and do something, uh, leave her in the next year. Uh, no, uh, he has violated her. Again, that same word used, humiliated her. And so, biblical law addresses this situation. It holds men accountable to repair the situation in the case of sex before marriage. People will bring this up in abortion debates like, well, if we outlaw abortion, we should hold men accountable as well. And Of course, yes, <laughs> uh, deal. When justice is done, it helps to prevent feuds and vengeance and for things coming, going out of control, which is what we find in this passage when they did not come to a just solution, that the passions were still uh, aroused and unlawful vengeance was taken. There's also, is in pointing to uh, uh, addressing the sin that is there, there's forgiveness for the most defiling sins in Christ Jesus for those who repent. And true repentance will involve seeking to make restitution with, with any sin when it's possible to happen. That those who repent ought to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But of course, the law also that's addressing this sort of thing is setting a minimal standard. It's pointing the people of God to embrace the ideal, which is that of purity and chastity, and to only take a a woman in marriage and to uh, live in the ordinance that God has ordained. And so beware of sexual immorality. This is part of the world in which we live, but ought not to be part of the practice of God's people. Secondly, beware wrath and murder. You know, the book of Proverbs warns young men against sexual immorality, but it also warns them of anger and violence. These are things that um, are very relevant to all people, but especially young people. Proverbs 29.22, a man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. So beware anger and wrath and excessive violence like we find in this passage. Outrage at sin is appropriate. The text itself recognizes that this was an outrageous thing. It was just to be indignant about it, uh, to be uh, moved by it, that this needed to be taken care of. But you need self-control lest this outrage lead to a sinful response. Even righteous indignation can spiral out of control into unrighteous deeds and unrighteous passions. That's often how sin works. One sin provokes the other person who then goes to the opposite extreme and uh, we end up hating one another and being hated by one another. Like I said, it seems like Jacob's sons have the last word in this chapter. They end with a question, and it almost it ends on an unresolved note. It's like you listen to a song, but it ends on that not the note you expect, and you're hanging there. Well, we come to the last word in chapter 49, as Jacob is on his deathbed, and he's telling his sons what's going to happen to them. And we read it already, but I'll remind you again. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Uh, They themselves are not quite cursed, but 
If you were expecting a blessing, this would have been disappointing. Uh, it is rather ambiguous blessing, right? Uh, Judah was blessed. Joseph was blessed. Simeon and Levi had this. Uh, and for generations, they would suffer repercussions as their descendants would not have their own territory, but would be scattered throughout Israel. Simeon scattered throughout the tribe of Judah, Levi being scattered throughout the people of Israel. Now in time, the the Levites and and Simeon would uh, be blessed uh, as they were humbled for uh, this. In fact, Levi's being scattered would turn into a blessing as they were set apart for the ministry of God's people. Their their violence was even harnessed in self-control to to serve uh, the cause of God uh, at certain times in their history. But what they did here is clearly condemned, what they did in the city of Shechem. And their anger and their wrath was cursed. Now, Simeon and Levi along with the other sons of Jacob, would learn their lessons by the end of the book. But in this instance, they were acting like Lamech. Remember Lamech earlier in the chapter of Genesis? Uh, He was known for his polygamy and for his vengeance. If you touch me, I'll kill you, as he boasted to his wives. What is it that marked the world before the flood came? It says wickedness, but what type of wickedness did it particularly mention? Violence. The world is filled with violence. Remember that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all peacemakers. They all sought to make peace. As far as it depended upon them, they would have peace with all men. Joseph will be a peacemaker by the end of the book. That's how the book ends, as he finds reconciliation with his brothers. Some use of violence is just, as in the punishment for murder in Genesis 9 and how Abraham waged war, but even these were measured responses to unjust violence. The violence of Simeon and Levi was disproportionate, was unmeasured, was unjust, fueled by cruel anger and condemned by God as they slaughtered all the men of the city. So beware of wrath and murder in your heart, lest you prove cruel to your neighbor. It's interesting that Simeon would later have someone named after him, Simon, uh, who would be named Peter, who at one point was similar to his namesake. He took up a sword too at a time in which he ought not to have, and he struck off the ear of the high priest, but he was rebuked by one greater than Jacob, by the Lord Jesus himself, as he told him to put his sword back away. So beware wrath and murder, and unjust violence. The last point here, though, is more positive. Hold fast to the Lord who delivers his people. This people was in trouble. They're in trouble throughout the chapter, and they're still in trouble by the end of the chapter. But God delivered them from their trouble. God delivered Israel from assimilation to the Canaanites. That's the threat throughout this chapter. Will they become one people? That's mentioned like two or three times, that they might become one people, that we might become one people. Is it good that the people of Israel become one people with the Canaanites? Um, Especially with the Canaanites making no mention about the God of Israel. Uh, We mentioned some of the biblical laws. There's another one that says, don't give your daughters to the Canaanites and don't take their daughters to be your wives. 
The marriage alliance was merely economic and it would have been a disaster, as it's evident from the speech to the men of Shechem. But God delivered them providentially and put an end to it. Christ delivers his church from the world. Even though sinful desires flare up among his people, flare up among you, they would bring us back to the world, yet the Lord is faithful. He does not give us over to our sins. He will maintain his church. He will save the elect. It is only by his grace that you do not return and perish with the world. God delivered them also from annihilation. He delivered them from annihilation in response to the slaughter of Shechem. That was Jacob's fear by the end. They're going to slaughter us. All the Canaanites are going to gang up on us and they're going to wipe us out. But next chapter, going, looking ahead a little bit, God puts the fear of God upon all the people so that they do not harm Jacob. They do not suffer the consequences which would be expected uh, and um, uh, expect, uh, understandable. The sons will suffer for their actions, as we find in Jacob's words at the end, but the church was saved. Even though your sinful actions can bring down harmful consequences, yet Christ will deliver you if you believe in him. He may discipline you. He might teach you repentance. But this would be because he cares for you and is your shepherd. He will not lose any of his sheep even though they will act like sheep and sometimes wander astray. Uh, He is a shepherd who will not just let them suffer for their own deeds. It might take a rod, it might take a staff, but he is a good shepherd. He will deliver his church from the folly of its members. If it was all up to your faithfulness, if it was all up to our faithfulness, we would drive this plane into the ground. Christ will build his church and he will see to it that the gates of hell do not prevail against it. He will continue the work that he has begun within you. In the end, Dinah was recovered. Her violation was more than compensated for, though not reversed, obviously. And the Canaanites were assimilated into Israel rather than the other way around. Uh, They became servants of Israel as all their producers and protectors were annihilated. Also, this action would demote Simeon and Levi from becoming the firstborns. Reuben's later going to be demoted later on for his action. Simeon and Levi for this action, leaving Judah, who would be promoted, especially after the line of Joseph would fail. And it was one from the line of Judah who would become king, King David, and a descendant of David who would be the promised Savior, the Messiah. Through these sinful and sordid actions, God was working to raise up the Savior. God worked through unmistakably sinful actions to work out His purposes, to keep Israel separate, to preserve them, to rouse Jacob up from his sluggishness, to send them on to Bethel, to prepare Judah to be the firstborn, Among Israel, God works all things for the good of his people, for those called according to his purpose. This does not excuse your sins or exempt you from all consequences, but it should give comfort to those who are humble and repentant. God can work through disasters like that at Shechem 
for his people's good, for the advance of his kingdom. Christ is seated in heaven, ruling over all things for the good of his people. So remember the disaster at Shechem. It was a great evil. Beware sexual immorality. Beware wrath and murder. And hold fast to the Lord who delivers his people. Do not trust in your deeds or your actions or your personal righteousness. Do not grow sluggish or careless in the days of prosperity. Hold fast to the Lord and serve him with your family. Pray that he might guide you and your family from such disasters. In whatever situation you find yourself, turn to the Lord, for he is merciful and faithful. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your mercy, that though uh, we have sinned against you, that you have mercy upon us and to guide us uh, as a good shepherd. And we pray that you would deliver us from sin, from its power, from its corrupting influence. We pray that you would correct us early, that we might turn from it and not bring disgrace upon your name and upon your church. We ask that you would preserve us also from uh, the evil that this world does, uh, that you would bring us through trials uh, by endurance and faith. We pray that you would carry out your purposes and plans to the good of your people, to the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.